I think a lot of people believe that we can get to where we want to go solely through the distribution system. It's through distributed energy resources, electric vehicles, and energy storage, rooftop solar. Well, to do that, I fundamentally believe that you also need a robust transmission system to help serve that. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. The transmission system is key to increasing the integration of clean energy resources. It enhances the resilience of the energy grid, powers electric transportation, and facilitates the adoption of a broad array of smart technologies to better serve our customers. EEI's member companies are vital to transmission development, and collectively, they invest more than $120 billion each year to make the energy grid stronger, smarter, and cleaner. Transmission development is a shared priority for policymakers, clean energy advocates, and electric companies. On this episode of Electric Perspectives, EEI Executive Vice President of the Business Operations Group and Regulatory Affairs, Phil Moeller, is joined by John Moore, Director of the Sustainable FERC Project in the Climate and Clean Energy Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and they will discuss how and why a holistic approach to transmission development is key to achieving our clean energy goals. So with that, I will turn it over to Phil. Well, thank you, Brian. And as Brian mentioned, I'm Phil Moeller of EEI. I want to thank everyone today for listening. I want to thank you, John, for joining me today to talk about the critical role that transmission plays in the electric power industry's clean energy transformation. Also, as Brian mentioned in his introduction, the nation's energy grid does depend on a strong and robust transmission system. I'm always excited to talk about these issues, and there's a lot to talk about these days in this topic area. John, Let's start by first informing our listeners a little bit about yourself and why the Natural Resources Defense Council has such a strong interest in electric transmission. Sure, Phil. Uh, And first of all, it's great to visit with you and, and talk with your listeners about this important topic, which unquestionably, I think even just this week, uh, is reached a higher fever pitch than I've heard about transmission in in many years. Uh, I do work at Natural Resources Defense Council uh, and direct the Sustainable FERC Project, which is a partnership of national, local, and regional environmental and supportive clean energy organizations. And you might uh, guess, as the name suggests, that we advocate primarily at FERC and the regional transmission organizations that FERC uh, regulates. The FERC project's about 25 years old now, and we got into this FERC advocacy because a number of us saw at the time that FERC was going to be increasingly important in what was then the very early days of the clean energy transformation, which is now uh, certainly galloping along at the moment. Uh, that was because of open access to the transmission lines uh, and the creation of regional transmission organizations, the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, and other actions primarily by FERC in the late late 1990s and early 2000s that essentially made clear that the transmission system was going to be increasingly important in delivering clean energy to consumers. 
I remember way back when I first started working on grid issues in the very early 2000s that in, in and, I, and I work and live in Chicago, that Midwest environmental groups were very supportive of the creation of MISO, uh, the Midwest at the time in, in, uh, uh, independent system operator, because they saw that the consolidation of a number of smaller utility areas into one giant balancing area, the elimination of rate pancaking, and critically, the planning of regional transmission would all help to bring wind power at the time. It was really just wind power from distant uh, places uh, to the population centers. Uh, and that's really fundamentally the same reason that many environmental groups support the creation of a Western RTO to consolidate the 38 different balancing authorities, eliminate rate pan pancaking that increases the costs of uh, all energy and also uh, helps to dispatch uh, energy across a much larger area. So just the, the creation of RTOs and the critical role of transmission in uh, the nation's energy system, especially as it evolves, is really a, a critical reason why we we support the system. And in, and just just to add that, it, you know, fast forward to the present, it was only about a year ago that then President then RDC Gina McCarthy was one of the early endorsers of the American Council of Renewable Energy's Macro Grid Initiative to highlight the role of a robust national grid, much like the nation's highway system in accelerating the clean energy transformation. Well, thanks for bringing us up uh, to speed on that, that historical perspective. You and I have known each other a long time because we worked together when I was at FERC. I think it's important maybe for some of our listeners who are relatively new to the industry, the, the point of the open access 888 was so that essentially the transmission system was open to all comers with the same rates, terms, and conditions so that it was truly an open access system. Uh, do you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. Uh, those early FERC orders on open access coupled with uh, non other non-discrimination orders and the creation of the RTOs all meant that independent power producers uh, had a much e had much easier access to the system and could sell their power either in the open market or you know much more commonly especially at the time uh, do bilateral contracts with the incumbent utilities and it was at least in that sense I think a little bit of a win-win both for the utilities and the power producers all of which was both of which I think were critical as states early on developed, especially in the Midwest where I'm from, uh, and along with uh, some of the coastal states, developed renewable energy standards, you know, those first wave, the first wave of renewable energy standards, really was was were facilitated by open access and by uh, the transmission system because obviously uh, even then states couldn't meet all of their renewable energy needs within their state and I I have a feeling Phil that we'll talk a little bit more about the interdependency of states uh, around these kinds of issues. Well, yes, thank you, John. I appreciate you you elaborating on that aspect of it from from my perspective. Again, a little bit historical. We had a system in our country of electric transmission that was pretty robustly built in the 1980s. Some of that was because of the, the type of power plants that were being built. And then we went through about a decade where there really wasn't much being built and the nation was behind. 
So roughly about 20 years ago, Congress recognized that this was a set of issues that needed more attention um, with the 2005 Act, including incentives for transmission. Uh, as you mentioned, the FERC, uh, even of course, when I was there, put out orders related to enhancing the transmission system. And yet we still have the, the ongoing challenges that relate to transmission, figuring out uh, where to build it, how to site it and get the right permitting, and then who pays for it because these are long-life assets. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? What are the NRDC's thoughts on kind of these big issues which make transmission particularly challenging to build? Um, planning, siting, cost allocation. Right, Phil. Well, those <laughs> that is indeed a large set of issues, uh, and certainly we think that FERC has a significant role to play in this, uh, as does Congress, and certainly as the you know the laboratories of FERC rules, the regional transmission organizations are at the front lines of doing a lot of that planning. So I, I think that first and foremost, uh, more FERC leadership is important. Uh, as you know, the last major uh, FERC rule on transmission occurred just about a decade ago in Order 1000, which sets some min new minimum standards on regional planning and interregional coordination among different uh, regions, both RTO and non-RTO regions. And you know, our general assessment has been that it has fallen up short in practice on all of the most of the areas you touched on. Siting isn't directly within FERC's purview. We could talk a little bit more about how RTOs might even be able to help with the siting process. But otherwise, whether it's regional or interregional planning or cost allocation, you know, the reality is most transmission now being built is local transmission. It's being built for local reliability and other needs. And of course, there is some regional transmission being built to maintain the reliability of the broader grid. Uh, but I think FERC could step in and update Order 1000 in a few important ways. You know, one would be to ensure that the RTOs take into account more benefits of transmission uh, than are currently accounted for. Another one could be to have more robust interregional planning, uh, planning between the regions, uh, which really hasn't happened uh, much at all. And on cost allocation, you know, quite understandably, that is where uh, states uh, get their hackles up. And I think is part of the reason we've got some distrust between the states and the FERC over planning. And, and you know, we, we don't have to get into the weeds, but there are a couple of court cases from a decade or more ago that really make it hard to to allocate the costs of the lines across all those who might benefit from them. And quite, you know, quite honestly, if we had the same tough rules for cost allocation for highway building and construction that we do for transmission lines, I'm not sure we would have gotten much beyond single pole wires. Um, so I think FERC can do a lot in all of those areas. And I, and I certainly think Congress also has a role. Uh, NRDC does support one of the provisions in the bipartisan infrastructure uh, bill that's percolating along right now in Congress that would improve uh, some of the Department of Energy citing uh, powers and uh, help hopefully move 
the siting along a little bit more in a little bit more coordinated fashion, at least. And then Congress is, of course, tackling other things in the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill as well that we're also fans of. Um, and I guess, finally, to give you even more to talk about and ask, uh, I think the RTO planning processes themselves certainly could use some improvement. Uh, we're following very closely what's happening in MISO as it works to develop the first set of mostly reliability-based uh, regional lines in at least the northern part of MISO. I think it's been unfortunate that there have been some tensions between MISO north um, states and MISO south states around cost allocation, which you know goes to my earlier point. So we're hopeful that something will bubble out of MISO this year that will represent a fundamentally, uh, you know, an incremental at least, but a, a, a positive step in the right direction towards building the kind of system we need. Well, thank you. You mentioned a lot of great topics there. Uh, it's great to hear that transmission is part of the national debate as it relates to the infrastructure of our country. Obviously, we think that's very, very important. And you mentioned planning. Uh, some would say that we need a more holistic approach toward planning, anticipating future generation sources and uh, making sure that state policies are, are considered when transmission plans are made. The FERC just put out recently its uh, advanced notice of proposed rulemaking covering all kinds of different issues uh, within the realm of transmission policy. And uh, planning, I think, is going to be a big part of our focus so that the process is improved and more efficient. And as I noted earlier, takes into account more aspects of transmission uh, future needs. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned also that you know, transmission provides a number of benefits that aren't quantified or monetized, just the reliability benefits of uh, a more robust transmission system it's something that people benefit from, but they don't have to pay for. With that, John, what are your thoughts on FERC's latest approach toward the ANOPER on this set of issues? Uh, I, I certainly think it's a, a very good step in the right direction, uh, and it's long overdue, uh, and I'm very, very happy about it. You know, you, you mentioned benefits, and I think the Texas case is probably a classic example, at least in the building of the transmission lines, where many of the beneficiaries weren't, it, it, well, in a, in a narrow view of benefits, the types of transmission lines that Texas built, and yes, they were uh, prodded along by a statute creating those clean renewable energy zones, but the types of benefits the Texans saw were, were different in different areas. The Texans in West Texas saw the benefits of tax revenue and jobs uh, and whatnot from the building of a large number of wind turbines in Texans in the eastern part of Texas saw the benefits of lower cost energy and more energy in general. So, you know, that kind of accounting of benefits we think is going to be really important. And those are like economic job benefits, for example. But even just within the narrower realm of electricity system benefits, there are more to count that, of course, are compared to the cost of the line. And so the more benefits, the more legitimate benefits that customers can see, the I think the more favorable any given project will look in comparison to the costs. Now, and I, I didn't quite 
mention it earlier, but I think that something else we've got the benefit of that maybe we didn't have 10 years ago when FERC issued Order 1000, you know, is the, is the development or is the, the, the possibility of more options for transmission build-out, uh, whether or not that means the deployment of these grid-enhancing technologies, uh, and I certainly include phase-angle regulators and other ways to shape the grid charge and dispatch in different ways as a really valuable piece of that, along with dynamic line ratings, coupled with new ideas that we're seeing around repurposing railroad or using railroad right-of-ways for undergrounding high-voltage direct current transmission, advanced conductors, uh, et cetera, et cetera, upgrading existing lines. So I think as, as an environmental organization and representing other environmental organizations, we certainly think that looking at the range of possibilities for upgrading the grid is also going to be necessary, not just new build in greenfield corridors, which uh, bring up the siting issues that we may talk about some more, but also just cost and uh, efficiency and speed uh, and other opportunities. So hopefully, if not, either FERC will be able to tackle some of those challenges in this rule, or if not in this rule, another rule. And I think the only, the other point that we really think FERC needs to tackle is this concept of who pays for the network upgrades when new generation comes on the system, uh, when new, uh, when areas of new generation are proposed, frequently the bill for paying for the upgrades is in the hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, uh, even over just one or two states. So we'd like to make sure, we'd like to see that there is more shared uh, costs of paying for those upgrades so that the people who benefit from them do uh, share in the cost as well. Well, you, you raise a, a good point that um, with our RTOs, many of them that have the resources of the clean energy transition in their footprint are in a in a position where they have all kinds of people lining up in what we call the queue to get on the transmission system. I think they all, all would admit that their processes for the queue need to be reformed so that there aren't phantom projects kind of blocking the way of real projects. Because as I think a lot of the citizenry of the country doesn't fully recognize that if, if we do a universal scale solar project, uh, in an area that obviously has good sun solar resources, that can come in at a third of the cost of people putting up their private systems on their own rooftop. And so that, again, is why we need the transmission system to, to send that power from where it's generated to where it's consumed. And one of the challenges in the cost allocation that you mentioned is that these these types of infrastructure investments change over time because they're going to be in service for 40 or 50 or maybe even uh, more years than that. And so what, what looks like cost allocation now might not be quite as appropriate later, but that's where there's just a lot of art and science that goes into cost allocation. Your thoughts on that? Uh, bingo. I think you really uh, hit the nail on the head with that one. And there is a range of all-in costs that you know, we like to make sure that states and others look at. Uh, it's not just the cost of the transmission line. It can be the cost of the lower cost, uh, the lower cost of the energy that might be more distant. Uh, so that oftentimes there is a balance somewhere in the middle between a a very expensive line that doesn't deliver much more renewable energy than the 
line that might be a little closer in that also is accessible to that accesses the the the, uh, uh, the higher capacity factor wind or solar power for example and that is certainly much cheaper on an all-in basis than building a short transmission line to a lower capacity value resource and maybe that's going to be one of the benefits in, of the new FERC uh, Federal State Transmission Task Force. Maybe it will be a good forum to discuss some of the benefits and trade-offs between local, in-state, and out-of-state resources coupled with more transmission. So I'm hoping that that is the kind of process that would reduce the level of mistrust uh, frankly, that sometimes exists between the states and FERC and the RTOs over these thorny cost allocation issues. Well, thank you for mentioning that the task force. For those of us uh, listening, maybe for the first time, this is a joint FERC task force with state regulators, members of NARUC. It's probably going to meet for the first time in November when NARUC has its annual meetings in Louisville. And there are 10 members of NARUC to join the five commissioners or how many commissioners will be in office at the time uh, to work on this set of issues. I think the good news is that they were limited to 10 spots, but reportedly had much more interest within the neighborhood community on uh, membership of this task force, but they've got a lot of work to do. As you mentioned, it's, it's a thorny set of issues when there's no federal siting authority, as you referenced earlier. And, I like to go back uh, again to the history books. Uh, the MISO projects called the MVP projects, which were approved about 10 years ago when I was sitting on the commission. That turned out to be a, a hugely successful set of projects. There's still one left to build because they were immediately fully subscribed when they went into service, but it took an enormous amount of work starting, I would say probably in Minnesota, with a capital plan that they had and then kind of spreading out to the states around Minnesota. And then crucially, it had a lot of support from the governors in the Midwest, even though it was not universally praised, I can tell you having voted on it. But oh, I'm wondering if the, the MISO example can be a good case study for going forward, but it also shows the incredible amount of work that has to be done on the front end before a successful set of projects can actually be uh, approved and deployed. Your thoughts on that? Well, first, you're right. It was a lot of work. Uh, it started in the mid-2000s with the final plan approved in 2011, and that occurred before FERC issued the final Order 1000. So it, I think is, it was really a, a model for Order 1000. Uh, it was not the other way around. It helped to catalyze Order 1000 um, as a successful example of something that did take a lot of time. And I think in part because it took a long time and because that was the only major set of projects that MISO has approved in that fashion since 2011, it, that has been itself part of the drive for both FERC and congressional action to to uh, help break the logjam in some ways. Now, it is true that with the current MISO plan for long-range transmission projects, that it 
just announced uh, a new cost allocation approach for uh, just a couple days ago, actually, uh, at least four uh, state governors in the Midwest have directed MISO to charge full steam ahead with a plan that addresses climate and reliability goals together. So there is some gubernatorial support for this. I think the task force will help to better, I, I I, I think the task force will also help with this idea of educating and really I probably just having a good dialogue to hear the state commissioner side of what they're looking for on cost allocation in particular and what they would be comfortable with. Because again, going back to the highway example, we would be nowhere near where we need to be or where we even are now uh, if we apply the same sort of cost allocation test to highway building that we do to transmission lines. Yeah, that's a great analogy to the highway system. And the fact is that people pay their gas taxes to to build it, basically a user fee. And it's similar to how people pay their transmission uh, portion of, of their bill, which is typically around 10%. So if you underinvest in that, you can actually be paying more for the, the energy that's delivered over those lines because transmission lines get congested just like highways do. So I think at least we're at this point in in DC and the surrounding public policy circles that almost everybody agrees more transmission is is needed. So how do we actually get it built? You mentioned Order 1000. I uh, voted for Order 1000. Uh, I probably would have flipped the importance to more focus on interregional planning than within the regions, but regardless, it moved forward. But I did dissent on the concept of reliability projects and uh, making sure that the the incumbent transmission providers had a right of first refusal because I, having worked for an energy company, I knew how important reliability projects are. The point is we, we want to get things built and the people who already build things are in the best position to do so. So that brings up the issue of the, the right of first refusal for uh, incumbent transmission providers uh, to, to construct those approved projects uh, throughout the planning project process. Uh, interested in your thoughts on the concept of a right of first refusal related transmission build from the NRDC perspective. Sure, Phil. Well, it's true, I think, that the right of first refusal or the elimination of it for a lot of projects in Order 1000 did have the unintended consequence, as the data shows, of moving more projects into the local uh, category, so to speak, that is not subject to regional planning and competitive solicitation for projects. And so that's that's been a consequence, an unfortunate consequence of that. You know, our general goal is the development of more uh, needed transmission lines at just and reasonable rates. Uh, so that's the, that's the first goal. And so with the set of rules we have right now, we have a, a two-pronged approach. First is whether or not the RTOs are actually doing what they're legally obligated to do, which is plan and approve regional lines. Uh, and is the fail is is the RT are the RTOs collective general failure to do that now leading to unjust and unreasonable rates? Uh, so that's the question. How do we fix that? How do we encourage more uh, regional planning? We actually have an idea around the uh, famous or infamous uh, RTO adder to the transmission incentives system, which would uh, focus the use of that adder on projects that are actually developed through the regional plan. Uh, That's one idea. The second comment or the second approach is, well, 
can competition fit in? Where where can competition fit in best? You know, right now, less than three percent projects are subject to competition. Uh, we do believe that they do save money, uh, and in the world where we think a lot more transmission is necessary, there should be enough work to go around, uh, especially on some of these longer cross regional lines. Uh, and, and also feel like, you know, completely get the point that the utilities that have been building the lines for uh, well on 80 or more years are pro probably do have the experience to do that. I don't think they're the only ones who can build transmission lines. I certainly think that with the system we're looking at needing, there is more opportunity. And, you know, at the extreme end, I think the brutal challenges that the Clean Line Energy Partners projects faced uh, on all of their projects and as purely merchant plays uh, need to be addressed in some way. And that includes the, the litany of, of both uh, cost alloc of both ROFR and also siting. So, I do think there are ways to get to win-win on this, especially given the system that we need. Well, great points. And I think that if we're looking at these big interregional projects, they're going to have to be collaborative efforts between several entities, just given the, the number of jurisdictions that will be involved and the size of the projects. I'm glad you mentioned the RTO adder issue because it's one where FERC seems to be kind of inconsistent. They're talking about the need for RTOs and how they will be key in delivering the clean energy transition. And yet then they propose to cut the incentives to be a member of an RTO that's been in place for roughly 20 years. Uh, that inconsistency, I hope uh, FERC will acknowledge and, and rectify. As a final question, you've you've kind of alluded to it uh, earlier related to FERC, but what would be, John, your advice to not only FERC, but also to the state commissioners who are involved in these issues going forward so that we can make some progress and get this needed infrastructure built in a way that enhances and accelerates the clean energy transition? Sure, Phil. Uh, great question. Uh, I think my number one comment would be that we're not in a zero-sum game between transmission and distribution. I think a lot of people believe that we can get to where we want to go uh, uh, can be done just solely through the distribution system, uh, and that's through distributed energy resources, electric vehicles, and energy storage, to name two of the biggest uh, rooftop solar. Well, to do that, I fundamentally believe, and many others do, that you also need a robust transmission system to help serve that. We're going to see more load growth as a result of electrification of vehicles and buildings and whatnot over time. Uh, we're going to need the bulk power system to help support that. So I think I'm a little uncomfortable with the narrative that's come out uh, in the press and elsewhere encouraging this oppositional view uh, between advocates of one system or another system. Really, the system is going to have to be designed to be you know, co-optimized, to use the technical term, and we're going to increasingly have to think of it as a single system. And for that reason, I think improvements to both the distribution and transmission system are going to be necessary. And FERC, I think, impliedly knows that given its, uh, or assumedly knows that given its orders 2222 and 841 on distributed energy resources and energy storage. But those orders will have impacts uh, on the distribution system as well. 
So, and for the same reason, I think states uh, certainly need to hear more about the value of interregional and, and broader systems that can help support their own distributed energy uh, resource goals and clean energy goals. Well, maybe that's our takeaway. This is not a zero sum game related to investments on the distribution and transmission system. It's an integrated grid that's going to be necessary uh, to be enhanced so that we have the adaptation, the hardening, the resilience of this infrastructure, given that people have certainly recognized over the last year and a half the importance of reliable and affordable electricity. John, I guarantee you, we could talk about this all day, but our listeners don't have that much time. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you for the voice that you and NRDC provide on this important set of public policy issues. And thank you for spending the, the time with us today. You bet, Phil. It's been great to visit with you. Well, that wraps it up from my perspective on this Electric Perspectives podcast. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you will tune in again next time. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening, and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.